Hey, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, so when I look at what is God's will, I start with that idea of what's the opportunity. But opportunities hit us every day. Uh, so people uh, will, I've had people show up at my doorstep um, and, and ask questions. Um, that's an opportunity, right? Um, you run into people and meet people every day. And so we run into opportunities. Does that opportunity mean that you should pursue every opportunity? Uh, every time that somebody asks for a donation or every time you pass a homeless person, that's an, that's an opportunity. Does that mean that you should take advantage of every one of those opportunities? And the answer is not everyone is God's will. And so you have to also ask yourself, do you have the ability? And if we wanted to take several days, we could go through the biblical passages associated with each of these steps. When God created or gave instructions on how he wanted his temple built, he actually told them exactly who he wanted to do certain things. He said the people who are very good at brass work should do this, and the people who are very good at stonework should do this, and the very people who are very good at singing should be in the choir, and the people who are good at this should do this. So your ability plays into this. If, if uh, I'd love to play in the NBA, I don't have the ability to do so. So it's not God's will for me to be in the, in the NBA, obviously, right? So, um, so you have to have an ability. So you have to, have to be honest with yourself. Can I do this thing, and can I do it well? Because God wants you, God is not a God of mediocrity. He wants you to do something, and he wants you to do it well. And so do I have the ability to do so? Do I feel a calling? <clears throat> this is a little bit um, fuzzy. Uh, we're going to get into this a little bit in 1 John, uh, where we are told to test the spirits, right? So we are encouraged many times <clears throat> to put off our sinful motivations and seek God's face, right? And when you have put off sin in your life and you put off uh, wrong motives, your heart will be consistent with God's heart for you. And so John MacArthur goes into this pretty deeply in his book on how do we know whether our calling is our calling or our desire, right? Is it God's calling for me or is it my own desires? And we have to put off wrong motives. So there was this great job opportunity this summer in San Francisco where I would have been doing things that it was a great opportunity. I had the ability to do the job. Um, and, and I was looking at this going... Yeah, the reason I really like this job because it would make much of me and there'd be a lot of money associated with it. Those are probably not the right motives um, to take any opportunity, right? And so you got to put off those wrong opportunities, and then you have to look at these other things. And one of those is responsibility. So I have a family and a wife and children and things like that, and, and I have to make sure that whatever <coughs> opportunity God presents to me, that it, I can still fulfill my responsibility. And in that job opportunity, there's no way I fulfill my responsibilities. And I had to get to that point where I said, I have to put that off, right? That, that excites me, but I can't do that job because it wouldn't allow me to do what I need to do, right? So as you start to look at what is God's call for me, you've got to start asking yourself these questions, testing the spirits to make sure that it's true. I actually heard an individual who said he left his wife because he had met somebody and they both, both felt called to go into the ministry uh, in foreign countries. And, and I'm like, no, that is not God's call. Because God would never call you to lose, leave your wife, ever. And so I don't care what that opportunity is. Um, it's not God's call. Uh, and so tar start to think about that. And then 
understand that God's sovereign, right? So Jeff's going to preach today on the sovereignty of God um, and understand that he has your plan already laid out for you, which is a nice thing because I get anxious and nervous about what does next week, next month, next year look like. Um, I'm sure you do as well. God already has a plan. He's laid it out for you. And what he wants you to do is be who he calls you to be today, tomorrow, and the next day, one day at a time, uh, while he works that out for you. Um, so any questions on, on that? Had a lot of discussions with seniors in college lately, and I thought, yeah, maybe we'll quickly run through that. All right, 1 John. Open your Bibles if you haven't already. To 1 John. <clears throat> if you take the notes that have been handed out, they're kind of given an outline of the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, remember that we looked at the purpose of the Gospel of John. And so the purpose uh, is in John uh, 20, 30, and 31, where Jesus said, uh, or where John says that now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? The Gospel of John was written so that you would understand that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So right above that in your notes, I've asked two other questions, right? So before we go there, how do we know that there really is even a God? Right? So a very basic question, uh, especially that, uh, you know, an atheist would ask is, how do we know that there really is even a God? There are two passages that I go to to answer that question. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. So Psalm 19, 1 through 6. And Romans 1, 19 and 20. Psalm 19, 1 through 6, Romans 1, 19 and 20. When I uh, was thought that I was ready to graduate from graduate school with my PhD, I interviewed for a professorship at Northwestern College. And one of the things that we had to, um, in the interview process, we had to say is how would we integrate faith into our teaching? And these are the two passages that I actually put in my application letter. Um, associated with that. So in, in Psalm 19, 1 through 6, it says the heavens declare. Um, so the heavens, if you look up into the sky, if you look out over the landscape, if you look around, you are caught in the awe of what God has created, and you cannot deny that he exists. Absolutely cannot. So turn, you can look at Psalm 1, uh, I don't have enough time to do all of this, but Psalm, look at Psalm 19 some other time. But Romans 1, Look at Romans 1 quickly. Because this is pretty clear too. And this is talking about those who deny there is a God. Right? Romans 1, we'll start in 18. And it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him, to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. If you look at what God made, you cannot deny he exists. If you're honest with yourself. If you look at genetics right now, so this is just 
this is pre-genetics, right? So if you look at genetics now, the power, and we'll talk about this tonight in this creation talk, about the statistical likelihood of life generating randomly. It is statistically impossible to generate the information in the human genome. Statistically impossible. I told my graduate advisor when I left, you have greater faith than I do. Because I believe in something that is realistic. You believe in something that can't statistically happen. Right? So that is what God is saying here in his word. Right? Is that he exists and you can see it in what he made. So how do we know we worship the right God? It's one thing to say there is a God. It's another thing to say, how do we know that we, right, we worship the right God? And 1 Corinthians 15 is a really nice passage associated with it. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians. It's years after Jesus is gone. He gives kind of a summary of the gospel message. And he says, in, starting in verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So some have fallen asleep. He's challenging the Corinthians at that point to go and find eyewitnesses. He's saying, listen, there are 500 people wandering around who saw the risen Christ. Go ask. If you don't believe this really happened, go find them. Right? If you're not pretty confident in the message that you're sending, you're not going to challenge somebody to go find 500 people and ask them. Right? So, um, so there is, we can be confident that this all happened. I, I know that many people have said, how do you know that the scriptures are true? How do you know that somebody didn't, that a group of guys didn't just get together and decide they were going to make this stuff up? And the answer is because there were a lot of eyewitnesses. So interestingly, Go back to your notes. In the Gospel of John, that's where John hammers too. He hammers in two different areas. So after telling what the purpose is, the witnesses are, he gives us a list of witnesses. So this is just a summary. I preached on this several years ago. You can find that on New Hope's website. If you want to hear the whole 45-minute um, sermon on, the, on this topic, um, you can, I can send that to you. But he talks about first the witnesses, John the Baptist, the disciples, the um, the Samaritans all declare that he is the Son of God. After meeting him, they all declare. Even the Gentile leaders who met him declare that he is the Messiah. So you have a series of witnesses who are, have seen him, have interacted with him, and who declare that he is who he is. But then you have what God gave, and that is miracles. And so the purpose of miracles, why did God allow miracles to happen? Why does he cause miracles to happen? To validate the message of the gospel. The only, if someone does a miracle and it's not intended to validate the message that's being proclaimed, it's a false miracle. He's a false prophet, right? The intention of the miracles was always to prove that Jesus who was who he was or that the apostles as they preached were preaching the truth. Right? And he gives a series of miracles, and I've listed them out here, that occur uh, in, while Jesus is alive. And this evidence is so overwhelming 
that even those who decide they're not going to believe in him can't deny it anymore. And so you see that in John 11, um, verses 45 through 48, um, where you see these Pharisees say, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Right? The people who were opposed to him couldn't deny it anymore. <clears throat> they were not going to accept that he was the Christ, but they certainly needed to stop him from convincing everybody else that he was. Right? And so why did they refuse to believe? Because they were not issued. And so you see that in, in John 10, where Jesus explains, why are those people not accepting the evidence which is very clear. So I hope that's helpful. John is trying to get in the gospel, he's trying to say Jesus is the Christ, right? You can have full confidence that he is the Christ. In the epistles, he wants you to have full confidence that you have true faith. And so that's the purpose of 1 John. Um, and so we looked at that a couple of weeks ago before we had our little snowstorm last week. Um, and so uh, the, the purpose there is so that we know that we might that we believe the right things, right? And he gave us three tests. Those tests are theological, moral, and, and relational. And I've listed out there um, the passages uh, where we find those. So we're going to hit those three things multiple times as we move through 1 John, um, because John hits those things multiple times, kind of like that parent who keeps emphasizing the same things over and over until you finally get it, right? Um, that's what he's doing here. And so... Um, he does a fantastic job. So we're going to jump in right away. Was that the mother of all introductions or what? First um, John, verse 1. Uh, we're going to do the first chapter today. Starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This sounds really similar to the way that he starts the Gospel of John, right? Um, he says, listen, he's describing Jesus again. He says, that which was from the beginning, right? Eternal God. So apparently, and you don't have to get into from a context standpoint, uh, there was false teachers coming into the church. So remember, 1 John is written somewhere between... 80 and 90 um, A.D., so 60-some years after Jesus has died, right? The church is established. It's growing. There are churches in multiple locations. John is an elder who is sitting in Ephesus but kind of has oversight for a bunch of churches in the region, right? He's in his 80s or 90s at this point, likely. And so there is false teaching coming into the church, and some of that... And if you want to know historical context, you can learn to, it's called Gnosticism. It was the idea that everything spiritual was good and physical was bad, and so Jesus didn't have a body, a true body. Or he was not truly God. So we believe that, God, that Jesus was fully God and fully human, and there's a need for that theologically. But the Gnostics were trying to say he was either fully spirit and not at all human or fully human and not at all spirit. He was trying to separate. They were trying to separate those things, right? And so he starts off by saying that which was from the beginning. He's saying, listen, no, Jesus is eternal. He is an eternal being who was with God at the beginning of creation. And yet he was physically here because he goes on and says, which we have heard, 
which we have seen, which we have touched concerning the word of life. And that is what he calls Jesus, the word of life. Right? And so he's saying he is fully God and he is fully human in that simple sense. So I've kind of already answered the first question there. How are we sure the Bible isn't just a construction of men seeking fame? So John himself was an eyewitness. Um, this is not just a guy who had a vision one time. This was a, a three-year process that he walked along with God in the form of Jesus Christ himself. Um, and there were many, many other witnesses. Uh, does the Bible claim that Jesus was more than just a good man? Yes, he was from the beginning. If you look uh, in, uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, very clear description of the eternality of Jesus. And so this is a discussion, again, of who this person is. If, if you want to look at our tests, it's the first theological test. right? He doesn't call it a test at this point yet. But he's saying, listen, this is what you need to believe in order to have true faith, that Jesus was truly God and truly man. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and has made manifest in us. So was Jesus eternal? Absolutely. Fully God, fully man. He was there from the beginning. He was with the Father. And yet he was there with the disciples. Verse 3. And that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So why did the apostles share the good news? That Jesus, the God-man, had come and accomplished victory over death? So that you might have fellowship. So what is, what is fellowship? The, the Greek word's koinonia. It means something more than just having coffee and cookies out by the back door. Um, it, it means partnership. It means close union. If, uh, if we look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you know, he says, Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit with you, whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. You are the temple. There is a union. You have fellowship with the Spirit because He's dwelling in you. Right? So the goal is eternal life, but it's also fellowship, present fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, And we write these things so that our joy may be made complete. So what, what brings joy to John the Apostle? To know his followers are true believers. That they're having that fellowship. Where do we find true joy? So there is some debate whether or not it should be our joy, whether that our includes the audience. Like So when I say, um, I could be talking about our meaning Zach and I, or I could be talking about our meaning all of us. Right. So there's some debate on what is the our joy complete. Um, what, is, what makes everybody's joy complete? It's walking in close union with Christ. Right? And, and I've said this before. The devil, since day one, wanted you to believe that you would have more joy, fun, whatever, walking outside of his will, God's will, than inside of it. Right? In chapter 3 of Genesis, we see 
the devil saying to Eve, look at this fruit. It really looks good. It looks very appetizing. You would be so much happier if you would eat this fruit. And God has these crazy rules that make you unhappy. It's the lie that he tells us today, right? We would be so much happier if we drank alcohol in excess. We'd be so much happier if we would be immoral. We would be so much happier. And the fact of the matter is it's a lie. We have far more contentment, satisfaction, joy, peace if we are walking inside of God's will. When we walk outside of God's will, we end up in conflict. And if we are his child, we end up being disciplined by him. And so that's not where we want to be, right? We want to be in fellowship with him and have that joy that he promises. The fruit of the Spirit, remember. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? How do we, Galatians 5, 22 and following, remember? Love, joy, peace, patience. We did that in VBS. What does that mean? That means if we put off sinfulness and we allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives, that we personally will have love, joy, peace, and patience. That that is what will, that will be what defines us as individuals. Doesn't that sound pretty good? Right? That's what, Paul, that's what John wants for us here. He's saying, I want our joy to be complete. And we need to do that by putting off the sinful nature. Verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him no darkness at all. What is their, what is their message? Their message is good news. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? God, what does light do? It exposes truth. It, it, it lets you see what reality is. Right? We walk around in darkness. We're not even sure what we should do. God is saying, listen, follow me and you will know. Right? I, will, I will show you what you are to do. And so it's good news in the sense of not just eternal life, which is the best news, right? but it's good news in the sense of it gives us direction in this life before eternal life. And so that is what God does for us when we draw close to him. He is the light. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we seek light. <clears throat> John 1, 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Right? God is that light. That shows us the direction we should go. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this is the first literal test that he puts in the scriptures. We're going to hit this multiple in this in the epistle. We're going to hit this multiple times. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we have eternal life, if we, are, if we say, claim to be a believer in who he is, and yet we walk in darkness. What is this walk in darkness? That means we continue to do the same things. We continue in sin. He says we lie and we do not practice the truth. 
Is it possible for a true believer to continue in sin even after being confronted in a biblical manner? And the answer is no. Not without serious consequences. And I mentioned Psalm, I actually think I said 42, it's 32. So flip quickly to Psalm 32. You'll remember that, that uh, David sins with Bathsheba, and he conceals that sin by having Bathsheba's husband killed, and then bringing Bathsheba into his household, and she is pregnant. And you'll remember from um, 2 Samuel that the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him uh, of his sin. In between that time, before Nathan came and confronted him, this is what's going on in David's life. Uh, Psalm 32, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Right? God, through his Holy Spirit, was confronting David with his sin, and he was having physical problems because of it. Right? If you are a believer and you are walking in sin that you've not confessed and turned away from, the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. And you will not be settled until you repent. Go on and say in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity and my sin. Go on and read the rest. He has comfort and peace after he asks for forgiveness. Right? So when I say in this passage, is it possible for a true believer to continue in sin? I mean to continue in, even after they've been confronted in a biblical manner. I mean, no, not without serious consequences. The Holy Spirit will tear you apart from the inside out if you are continuing to sin. If, you, if your conscience is clear and you're living in sin, then the Holy Spirit's not in you. It's not working on you. And so the first moral test is that test right there. So what do I mean by confronted in a biblical manner? We did Matthew 18 um, in church. Uh, so if you're interested in knowing what that looks like, the Peacemaker book's over here. Um, how do you confront those things in a biblical manner? Matthew 18, 15 through 17 uh, talks a little bit uh, about that. Um, and so uh, I already gave you uh, a passage uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, that says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another reference associated with that, Ephesians 5, 5 through 8, which says the same things, um, that the, those who are disobedient will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear in the scripture that you can't continue in sin. Does that mean that we don't sin at all? And that's where he goes next. Uh, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. And so if we are true believers, if we are truly walking in the light with Jesus, and we truly have eternal life, that fellowship, the Holy Spirit's dwelling in us, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What does that mean? Okay, I'm going to go on another bunny trail here. Um, what does that mean, that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin? If you're going to talk to somebody who's interested in understanding the good news, you've got to understand the concept of sin, the consequence of sin. If you look in Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. Right? 
when, when God started in the garden in Genesis 2.17, he said, listen, if you do this, you will die. The consequence of sin is death. Right? The reason that things die is because <coughs> sin came into the world. We'll talk about that tonight, too, in the creation talk. Right? The reason that things die is because there's sin. That's the reason for death, right? So how does the death of Jesus deal with that? In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Right? So why did they do the Old, temple, the Old Testament temple thing? And they killed all those animals. Because God wanted them to see the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin was death. And they sacrificed all those animals. They killed all those animals because God wanted them to take serious sin. Sin requires death. Didn't have any value. But he wanted, to see, he wanted them to see that. Right? What about Jesus? Jesus died. Should he have died? And the answer is no. He didn't sin, so he shouldn't have died. We all should die, because we all sinned. But he should never have died, because he shouldn't pay the consequence. And yet he did. And because he did, he died in our place. And so he took, we call that a propitiation, some replacement, right? And so that's why, that, that's this blood of Jesus that cleanses us. Because he died and he shouldn't have, his blood... Cleanses me. It, it, it takes the place of my blood. Right? And that's what he's saying here. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what if we say we, we don't sin? So he just said, if you live in sin, you're not a believer. But he's also saying, if you claim that you've never sinned, you're also not a believer. Right? He's saying, you've got to be honest with yourself. In order to accept what Jesus Christ, the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. And the bad news is we sin. And we deserve death. And if you're, if you're not there yet, if you're saying, listen, I don't deserve to die, I'm a good person, you're not a believer. You need to get to that point where you say, listen, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Because if you say, I don't need a Savior, I'm a good person, and I deserve to go to heaven because I'm a good person, you're this guy right here who say you're not, you're not you don't, you shouldn't pay the consequences of the sin. Right? And so he's saying, listen, we need to be saying, no, we need to understand, recognize, own our sin. And verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So how do we avoid the penalty of sin? We avoid the penalty of sin by recognizing our own sinfulness. We recognize what Jesus did. Right? He never sinned. He was fully God and fully man, yet he died and shed his own blood. And then we can accept that for our own. Right? Repentance of our own failures, denial of the truth. Demonstrates disbelief. Right? So... John wants to start off really strong, right? This is, he doesn't play around right away in the first chapter. He, he comes right at you with, who is Jesus? 
And then what are you claiming to be? Right? And he says, listen, this is, these people are not true believers. This is what a true believer believes. And then he's going to hit that now over and over and over again over the next couple of years. Questions associated with the passage? My wife is getting nervous. <laughs> no, text me if you're coming. Know. So we have an then idea. Then we'll play in a few more pizzas. But, and what time is it? 8 o'clock tonight. Text me if you're coming. 712-441-7327. Church starts in three minutes. Let's pray. <laughs> Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the black and white message that John brings. Uh, that we need to accept you for who you are. And we need the son that you sent to save us from our sins. And we thank you and we praise you uh, for doing that for us because we know what we deserve. So help us to honor you. Help us to come into your house and worship you in the way you deserve. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll stick around up here if you've got questions for a while. <laughs>